Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? This podcast aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. IDSA recently released its own social distancing recommendations in conjunction with HIVMA. In this episode, we'll be discussing the importance of social distancing and its impact on the spread of the virus. Here to cover that are Dr. Sandy Kemmerly with Oshner Medical Center, Dr. Tina Tan of Northwestern University, and Dr. Rochelle Walensky, Chair-Elect of HIVMA of Harvard University. All are infectious diseases specialists. Thank you all so much for being here. Dr. Tan, I'd like to start with you. Many Americans are eager to resume some level of normal activity. Some areas are even beginning to report that they're seeing a flattening of the curve. Does that mean they're ready to ease social distancing measures? And what are the risks of doing that too soon? So the decision to reopen the country and to ease social distancing measures really has to be based on the best scientific data that we have available. Areas of the country that are reporting that they are flattening the curve are definitely not ready to ease social distancing measures as the curve flattening that they are reporting being seen is based on incomplete data. Um, Currently, one piece of data that we do not have anywhere in the country is a true number of people who are infected with COVID-19. And the limited availability of testing nationwide has been a major problem. Information gathered from testing would help us to understand the number of people that are infected and provide us with a better understanding of how the virus is spreading. And as you mentioned, HIVMA and IDSA recently published their recommendations for easing um, COVID-19 distancing restrictions. The recommended approach to reopening the country is stepwise and very specific steps need to be in place before areas of the country can be reopened. And if you look at some of the critical steps that need to be in place, one of the major ones is the widespread availability and easy accessibility of accurate diagnostic testing. One other major thing that we need to be able to do is the states, the local areas, and the regional areas need to have the ability to safely, accurately and rapidly diagnose, treat, and isolate individuals with COVID-19. And they also need to be able to test and track their contacts with an emphasis on populations that are experiencing health disparities. So when you think about what populations these would be, this would include individuals living in rural communities, individuals living in communities of socioeconomic means, African-Americans, homeless individuals, people in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities, people in prisons. Um, Testing really must be readily available to anyone with symptoms of COVID-19 or to any of their contacts um, so that we get a better idea of who's infected. Cities and states also have to have the health infrastructure in place that allows them to safely and rapidly scale up their healthcare capacity to manage recurrent outbreaks. And we know that there are gonna be recurrent outbreaks. This means that they need to have on hand adequate supplies of PPE, they need to have adequate ICU beds, adequate ventilators, and other critical equipment to ensure that the healthcare system as well as the first responders are ready to respond to any outbreaks that may recur. 
And we know this virus is not going to go away anytime soon, and there will be other emerging bio threats that will occur. So it's going to be absolutely critical that we enhance our preparedness for this by rebuilding the U.S. pandemic preparedness with investments into research, into the development of an infrastructure to enhance our stockpiles of PPE and to ensure adequate manufacturing capacities to make critical supplies, as well as investing in the workforce. We need to ensure that an investment is made in expanding the infectious diseases and the public health workforce to effectively address COVID-19 and any other emerging biohealth threats. The risk of lifting social distancing restrictions too quickly can have disastrous consequences, which can result in a resurgence of the COVID-19 outbreak with significant spread of the infection, an increase in the number of hospitalizations, and an increase in the number of deaths. And there's also the potential to completely overwhelm healthcare facilities, with all of this leading to further negative economic impacts. So reopening areas of the country really needs to be thought about very, very carefully because if we do not do it properly, there will be many more people infected and more lives lost. Clearly, a lot of considerations are necessary before a true and full reopening can happen. Thank you, Dr. Tan, for your perspective there. Dr. Kimberly, moving on to you now, what should the process of easing social distancing policies look like? Yes, thank you. Um, You know, we're all looking forward to resuming our old way of life. But as mentioned, we must be careful when we ease social distancing so we don't negate any of the improvements we've made in any areas in flattening the curve. In the greater New Orleans region where I am, strict social distancing appears to be successful since the stay-at-home order was placed the third week of March. However, it's early and it's not currently sustained. We must be careful and not ease restrictions too quickly and increase the spread of infection, which may result in a second wave of illness and increased mortality. Now, to this end, we must ease social distancing when we do so in a systematic and progressive manner based on data, regional and community data from across the United States. Going forward, we all have to maintain good hand hygiene and other hygienic factors which have been so much um, emphasized in this current pandemic. And additionally, there has to be adequate testing capabilities to make these strategies successful. All Americans should have access to testing with quick turnaround times. However, keep in mind, this testing needs to be accurate, widely available, and must have a sustained supply to the individuals requiring testing. I think ultimately we will have a phased-in approach based on immunologic data, a strong public health plan, and modified social distancing measures as it relates to an individual's personal health risk. Following up on that, Dr. Kimberly, should some activities be avoided for a longer period of time? I think with the phased-in approach, um, we will have to make modifications in large gatherings, public gatherings, public festivals, um, how many people can fit, say, in a movie theater, in a restaurant. And I think that will happen as we phase in the use uh, or the relaxation of the social distancing measures. But again, it has to be based on data in the science, which is in those individual communities. And to make, you know, widespread 
um, global announcements or pronouncements at, at this point in time, you know, especially as relating to sporting activities and other big events, I think is a little premature with the information that we have now. You make some great points there, Dr. Kimberly. Dr. Walensky, turning to you now, when people return to work or school, what physical distancing or hygiene measures can help prevent the spread of infection? The first thing I think that's really important that we've learned from the incident command structure that I think many of our hospitals are operating under is the importance of leadership. Somebody in, um, in charge who is going to take charge of sort of the operations associated with COVID. And what we've learned is that there's been a lot of pieces to this puzzle that we've needed to work through. Starting back in schools, starting back in businesses, somebody should be in charge of educating your employees about what they should be doing and how they should be behaving. Somebody should be in charge of um, speaking to students or, or um, employees about how they should behave if they, are, um, if they get sick. And then somebody should be in charge of cleaning surfaces and ensuring that all sorts of cleanliness and activities um, related to the cleaning are, are there. So there have been a numerous number of policies that I would anticipate that schools and businesses are going to have to adhere to. And somebody should really be in, take charge of sort of the big picture there. I want to speak to the vigilance that's really required, um, and that is with regard to both students, staff, and employees about their symptom and symptom monitoring. So we need to have very liberal policies for people to be willing to stay home and to not sort of be taxed in any way, shape, or form if they do stay home. We do not want people showing up if they have a runny nose, if they have a cough, even mild, because we really want to make sure that those are the kinds of people that get funneled off, get screened, get tested and don't come and potentially transmitting diseases to anybody else. So we want to make sure we at um, Mass General, where I work, we attest every day on our phones and have to show our attestation that we have absolutely no symptoms before we come to work every day. Those kinds of policies may actually be helpful in, in, in other settings. I, I suspect many of us will see that people are wearing masks. Um, so we're going to be, we're wearing masks outside now. It may very well be that if we're going to be in situations where we're less than six feet apart of people, from people in schools, and in businesses that we may want to continue our mask wearing policy. I would very much suggest that we are not um, sharing phones, that we are not sharing um, desks or laptops or things like that, because really, or if we are, that we have, we're doing really um, a lot of cleaning of surfaces. So that gets to the next point of cleaning any surface that might be shared frequently um, using, you know, recommended cleaners, as well as frequent hand hygiene that everybody has been talking about since this pandemic really started. And then finally, I'll close to um, something that Dr. Kamerley spoke to, and that is the decreasing of group size activities and the decreasing of density, really, in all of these settings. So it may very well be that um, we have half the kids come to school one day, the other half learning online and, and switching the day after or switching the week after. I really think we may want to be in a place where we are decreasing the density of people who are um, showing up to activities. And that, that means maybe we prefer to have classes sit every other other seat, um, having 15 children in a room or 10 children in a room rather than 20 or 30. Um, not that school would be, um, that those kids would only go half time. It's just that we may want to leverage what we've learned about online learning during these times where we all been stay, we've been staying at home and sort of capitalize on some of that so that um, we use it going forward. So much to think about, Dr. Walensky. Dr. Tan, can you describe the role of the public health system, including surveillance and contact tracing in the process of reopening the country. Well, we know the CDC and the local and state public health departments really play a critical role in the process of reopening the country. 
They are tasked with taking on a leadership role in putting in place a robust surveillance system that can provide reliable information on who's infected, the risk of getting the infection, the severity of the infection in populations, and progression of the pandemic. They also should provide guidance as to the effectiveness of interventions that may be used, as well as research that is in progress. Increasing the capacity for testing and making it easier and readily accessible is really going to be key in determining the number of individuals that are infected. And even though this is being done in the United States, it's not being done as rapidly as it really needs to be. Contract tracing also plays a big part in being able to identify infected individuals. And this is the challenge because of the manpower that's needed. Based on what has been seen to date in the COVID-19 pandemic, it is assumed that one infected person can infect three susceptible individuals. And there have been several modeling studies performed to look at how much manpower would be needed for effective contact tracing. Included in these modeling studies was one from the Center for Health Security at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And what these studies estimated was that the U.S. would need somewhere between 100,000 to 300,000 persons, whether they were paid individuals or volunteers, that would need to work as contact tracers in state and local public health departments to ensure that proper tracing were done. So to put this in perspective, the U.S. currently has about 2,200 people that work as contact tracers. So you can see that we would need to be able to significantly ramp up the manpower in order to do this properly. And this pandemic has really pointed out that our current infectious diseases and public health workforce is really undermanned and underfunded. It's a huge risk to reopen the country until we can get a better idea of the true number of persons that are infected, um, have the ability to track contacts properly, and have an infrastructure in place that would allow cities and states to rapidly scale up their healthcare capacity to manage recurrent outbreaks. Along those lines, Dr. Tan, let's talk about what additional resources or workforce does our public health system need to accomplish testing and contact tracing that you just mentioned at an appropriate scale? That's going to be really difficult because the public health system right now is very much underfunded. And if we're going to do this properly, there has to be more funds put toward the public health system so that we can either hire or um, ask for volunteers to do the contact tracing, to basically do the testing that's necessary, um, and basically to ensure that things are working that the way they should so that we have the ability to um, respond to any recurrent outbreaks that may occur. Thank you for your answers, Dr. Tan. Dr. Kimberly, what should our testing capacity look like before social distancing rules are lifted? Well, our testing capabilities need to be easily available, accurate, and relatively fast. We can no longer wait days or weeks to have test results. We need them in a short turnaround time. We need to have ample molecular testing for identification of these infected persons so they can be isolated and contact tracing can be performed. And this testing must be scaled to every community so there is access to tests with high clinical sensitivity and specificity. Community testing should be done in short-term testing facilities that we haven't really had before. 
rather than things like traditional hospitals, clinics, emergency rooms, and those types of traditional settings. Some of these may include drive-through testing, other pop-up sites, and other situations that maintain social distancing and keeps people in their cars or walk-up settings and not into congregated hospitals and clinics. Point-of-care and rapid tests um, are preferred in this testing approach. And I think another consideration is the antibody testing for anti-COVID-2 antibody to estimate the incidence of infection and to identify those who may have some immunity and to reinfection. Widespread immunologic testing is necessary for us to help understand the patterns of exposure and levels of herd or protective immunity in local populations and communities. I mean, certainly we have more testing than we did a month ago, but it's not enough. Some studies estimate that testing needs to triple in the U.S. before it can safely reopen. Currently, there are estimated to be about 150,000 tests available a day, and it's estimated that up to half a million will be needed, if not more. Over the past few weeks, there's been tremendous progress made, made both in antigen and antibody testing, but clearly more is needed for it to be widely available and accessible to everyone in their communities where they live. And along these same lines, are we close to having the testing capacity we need in order to ease social distancing policies? Yeah, I would think we're closer than we were three weeks ago. I don't think we're at adequate capacities now. It would depend upon how quickly we can get commercially available tests that can be rapidly done in many different settings to be widely accepted and used. I appreciate your thoughts there, Dr. Kemmerly. Dr. Walensky, coming back to you now, what additional steps are needed to ensure healthcare systems and providers are prepared to manage recurrent episodic outbreaks that may occur as social distancing policies are lifted? One of the first things that we really need to work on is the supply chain of our PPE. This has been an incredibly stressful um, period and not having PPE to protect healthcare workers has been one of our largest challenges. Um, How is it we're gonna protect the people so that they stay well and dedicated to caring for others? Um, Right now we have N95s. We were really at at a pretty strict shortage of N95s, but I will tell you we're re- using and um, recycling our N95s, that's a policy I've never had to to do. So I I really do think that we need to um, bolster our supply chain for PPE and of course for testing that everybody's talked about. So that's thing one. Thing two is I think we need to think through some of our infection control measures within the hospital because I think we may need to have either shadow systems or mirrored systems for patients with COVID-19 and patients without COVID-19. One of the things that we're working on in our hospital is what happens if somebody is still um, still has is still COVID-19 positive, so they're um, they haven't decreased all the way their viral shedding, but they're due for chemo or a monoclonal antibody infusion. Um, How is it, where should they be going for that infusion? Where will they get it? Are they safe to get it? Um, And so I think we need to think through what what if somebody with COVID-19 needs is actually relatively well, but needs a colonoscopy or needs a surgical procedure. Um, How are we gonna manage in those settings and and making sure we of course have the adequate PPE to to manage that. Um, 
next thing I want to just comment on is the testing. And I say that because um, while so many people are focused on testing, I really want to focus on what happens after testing. Because while this was a disease um, initially of people who were on airplanes and cruises, what it's, free, what it's mostly turned to a disease of, it's, it's many others as well, but of vulnerable communities. So how is it that we as a society are going to manage somebody who has a positive test who we sent home to isolate, but they live with seven people in a small apartment? Um, I, I've heard isolation and quarantine is, um, is a gift that we have in that um, we are able to, if you are able to, to do so, that that should be considered a gift because many people, in fact, cannot, a privilege, right? Many people cannot isolate and, and um, quarantine. Um, and protect their family members. What if we um, said person really is an essential worker and um, would otherwise work on the subway or otherwise work in the restaurant business? Um, so how is it that we're gonna take those folks and, and give them, deliver to them a positive test and yet make sure that their livelihood is protected and their family is protected? And I think that's a responsibility that lies with all of us. And then finally, as we do start seeing our hospital censuses coming down with COVID patients, we start thinking about what opening up looks like. We start getting back to some, some newer space where we feel comfortable that we can start on elective procedures again. I think we have to watch the hospital census really carefully because I expect that we're going to see some swelling um, of our COVID census afterwards. And I think we really need to be careful to reinstate um, some of the social distancing and sort of a staccato-like way so that we don't overwhelm the hospital yet again. We, we can't afford um, personally, emotionally, um, physically to be in a space like we have been for the last several months again. Thank you, Dr. Walensky. For our last question, I'd like to direct it to the entire panel. President Trump recently announced that states could reopen as early as May 1st. Do you believe areas of the country will be ready to do so that quickly? Dr. Tan. Absolutely not. I think we are missing a lot of key pieces of data that are needed to safely make the decision to reopen um, the country. We don't have enough testing in place, so we don't know what the results of that are. We don't have contact tracing in place. And um, in many areas, hospital systems are just not ready to readdress um, another COVID-19 outbreak. So I think um, these decisions cannot be made on some arbitrary calendar date. It really needs to be made um, with a lot of scientific consideration put into it. Dr. Kimberly? Uh, yes, I would agree. I would you know, caution of picking arbitrary dates such as May 1st as when they could reopen. With that said, I believe that some communities may be ready before others, and it would depend on the COVID activity in those communities. Perhaps some less dense communities may have some inherent social distancing built in, and they may be ready for uh, before some of these higher density areas. We'll need to monitor the data, continue to look for hotspots, and be mindful of community and hospital resources needed to care for these patients. We have seen um, a, re, a number of patients that have been readmitted with other complications from COVID 
that um, now that the survival is a little bit better. And so we're just now beginning under, to understand what those complications are and how to care for those patients. So I think there's a lot that remains to be more fully understand about the pathogenesis and natural history of the COVID-19 disease, both in the acute and post-acute settings. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kimberly. I appreciate your insight there. Dr. Walensky, the last word is yours. Yeah, I, I would echo what's been said and just highlight, you know, this disease has not impacted all of the states um, in the same way at the same time. It started in Washington, California, New York, Massachusetts. New York is now talking that they're sort of hoping they're on the other side of it. We're just in the peak of it in Massachusetts. So I think to claim that we're all going to open up um, at the same time is really short-sighted in understanding that this is a wave of, of um, disease. It's not affecting every community the same way at the same time. And I think we need to respond in a very similar way. Opening in New York is not going to be the same as opening in Texas. And um, so I think we have to be cautious of that. The other thing I, um, I know Dr. Kimberly spoke to how many tests we really feel like we need. One measure that I've been keeping my eye on is the um, frequency of positive tests. So in Massachusetts now, um, our, uh, about 25% of our tests are positive, which tells me that we're testing people who have a high pretest probability of disease because one in four people actually have disease. In places like South Korea, where they have um, controlled this epidemic really quite well, their positivity rate is around 3%. That gives you a sense that we are testing way few fewer people than they are in South Korea. And I feel like we need to get our um, positivity rate less than 5% before we can start feeling like we are testing adequately. At this time, we'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Dr. Sandy Kimmerly, Tina Tan, and Rochelle Walensky. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.